guys. Thanks for tuning in to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a great episode with Joseph Graham of Graham's Guide Service out of Rio Dosa, New Mexico. And this guy's an Ibex nut. We're going to talk to him about Ibex, Oryx, Elk, and uh, Bighorn Sheep, both Rocky Mountain and Desert. And he's going to break down uh, the units that he works in. And he's going to talk about the animals and uh, break down all of the sheep units and uh, it's, it's a great episode, and I know you guys are going to enjoy it. I want a couple reminders. The New Mexico uh, applications for big game are due March 22nd, so don't forget March 22nd is the deadline for New Mexico. Uh, we've got Colorado coming up, and I've got a couple of Colorado uh, podcast episodes. That deadline is April 4th. Uh, make sure to put on your calendar the 22nd for New Mexico and April 4th for Colorado. I also want to remind you guys that uh, March 21st, which is a Tuesday, Dar Colburn and myself will be doing a turkey hunting seminar at Calvary Church. Uh, there off of I-17 on the west side of the freeway, roughly about uh, Cactus Road, I think between like Cactus and Bethany Home, somewhere down there, just west of I-17. I it's at Calvary Church. Uh, they're also going to be raffling off a uh, Gould's Turkey Hunt with us at Col- uh, Colburn and Scott Outfitters and Gould'sTurkeyHunt.com. $10 for a ticket. Uh, you can uh, you don't have to be present to win. You can go to desertchristianarchers.org and uh, you can actually buy the raffle tickets there. And uh, yeah, if you're a turkey hunter, if you got a turkey tag or if you just want to come and watch some good video, we're going to do a question and answer session as well. Uh, make sure to show up down there. I believe the doors open at 6, 6 p.m. Uh, so guys, I'd love to see you. If you're a podcast listener, uh, definitely want to shake your hand, look me up and it's always great to uh, get together with you guys. I want to, I want to also thank the sponsors of this podcast, gohunt.com insider is the title sponsor of this podcast. If you use the J Scott promo code, when signing up, uh, you get a $50 Kuyu gift card. Also, Kuyu.com, Jason Harrison and his crew at Kuyu. We're going to have some great promotions that we're going to be announcing here soon. Uh, Phonescope.com, Cheston Davis out of Beaver, Utah. You get a 10% discount if you use the JSCOT16 promo code. Uh, and also uh, the Optics Authority, Cody Nelson at the Outdoorsman's here in Phoenix, uh, 1 800 291 also outdoorsmans.com if you use the j scott promo code when you call in or when you go on the website you're going to get a 10 percent discount so guys let's get right to this episode with joseph graham also want to remind you guys real fast uh, you can send me an email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com you can follow along our adventures on instagram at jscottoutdoors my associate dar colburn d-a-r-r colburn uh, on Instagram, our business Facebook page, J. Scott Outdoors. You can also go on my website, uh, jscottoutdoors.com. I'm actually started updating my blog there. It's under the news title. Uh, and um, we've got a few spots available for Gould's turkeys uh, this 2017 season. And I'm also already booking for 2018. So if you need a Gould's to complete your Royal Slam, uh, go to Gould's, that's G-O-U-L-D-S, Gould's Turkey Hunt.com. 
Uh, you can also send me an email. I'm happy to send you the information at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Thank you guys for your support. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Joseph Graham of Graham Guide Service out of Riadosa, New Mexico. And I'm going to be talking to Joseph about ibex, oryx, elk, and sheep. We've got a March 22nd deadline coming up, I believe, here in New Mexico. And there is still time to apply. Uh, you can also apply in the guided pool, which I'm going to be talking with Joseph about. And um, he's going to tell us all about uh, ibex, oryx, elk, and sheep there. And uh, Joseph, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Jay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. I'm anxious to... Um, I've been looking here on your website, and it looks like you're just an avid uh, hunter yourself, as well as guiding. But it looks like as much, you know, whenever you can get out yourself and hunt, you you do so. Uh, I want to give you a chance to kind of tell the listeners how you got started. You know, where are you from? Where were you raised? Um, your your kind of your start in hunting, and how that led you to being a, a guide there in New Mexico. Well, I mean, I was born and raised right here in Rideau, so um, grew up right here, graduated here, and uh, landed a job with the power company as a lineman, and uh, have done that for 23 years now, but uh, as far as that, you know, my bread and butter, that's pretty much how I got to where I'm at today, but I started, uh, all my uncles got me really going into the hunting uh, they were big time elk hunters back in the day and, and kind of brought me up, you know, I didn't really know any different because that's how they brought me up was hunting elk, calling bulls. And so, um, I had a guy that started an outfitting business here, geez, 20 years ago. And they were talking to my uncles about, uh, you know, we're trying to get them to guide for them. And, and they're like, nah, you don't need it. You don't want us. You want to get my nephew. So that kind of got it kicked off. And I, I guided for an outfit here for, 13 years and then uh, they sold out and I decided to start my own business and uh, so I did that and you know it started off slow but it's just been going gangbusters the last couple three years and it's just been crazy a whirlwind to be honest with you because I'm still doing a full-time job and and uh, doing a outfitting business at the same time. Sure I know it can be a lot of work you know I get I get this question a lot um, almost weekly uh, from young guys that listen to the podcast or follow me on Instagram and follow my own outfitting career and such. And they always ask, it's the same question, how do you start and how do you become successful at being an outfitter and a guide? And I, I'm just going to ask you the question so you can tell them your version of, of, of that, the answer. Well, you know, I guess for me, I'm, it's just a passion of hunting. And then you just get going and you just can't get enough and you know having uh people that uh, understand your passion and allow you to pursue those dreams that's that's huge i mean you get a lot of guys that uh run into the to the married life or girlfriends that uh have difficulty trying to explain and, and understand it and some of us are very fortunate that our spouses and girlfriends and whatnot just understand that this is who we are and uh just having the drive for something like that and just you don't you don't see anything else i'm not going to say it's like having blinders on but we're just nuts over it i mean it's kind of like uh, people wonder 
what's wrong with me and, and why I love the Ibex so much. And it's just because it's, it's just a challenge. I don't care who you are, where you come from. It's, it's a challenge. I mean, the mountain's brutal. It's a, uh, it's a big rock pile. And, and I don't know why I think my wires are crossed because I just, eat it up and love it and the just more going down torture, and watching those things the more torture <laughs> it involves the better you like it <laughs> i think so sometimes on you know i've been on some backpack hunts for myself uh you know i go on guided hunts myself in other places and and i will sometimes think to myself what have i got myself into yeah yeah let, let's dive right into um the ibex hunts and i noticed that uh, not only do you guide these hunts but you actually you pursue this tag and i believe you've shot ibex as well i have jay you know i've been very fortunate over the years i uh i've had two muzzleloader tags and two archery tags myself and i've killed four ibex um my first muzzleloader tag was back in 04 and i shot a uh, 47 inch billy that was number one in the world for a little while um then i decided i'd do the archery thing and, and, uh, got real serious with it and spent seven days on the mountain, just, you know, living up there. And one night I had to tie myself to a tree. Um, the wind was just screaming. We, me and a buddy of mine were living up on top of the hill and, and the wind was just howling up there. And so I wound up tying myself to a tree and got back in my tent because I knew I'd at least have a fighting chance if I had a rope tied to me. But, oh uh, finally, uh, finally got a, got an ibex with a bow and then after that you know i mean obviously after i killed the big one with the muzzleloader it became a major passion but after i killed one with a bow it's like wow you know they say that this is a, a three to five percent success rate on archery and and here i am just completed that and uh, had another buddy that was with me and he got one we actually wound up killing two the same day within probably three or four hours of each other and uh then i pursued it um, again, got a, another Ibex, um, practiced out at the, at the longer distances and, you know, had myself where I was proficient at a hundred yards and, and, uh, was shooting all the way out to 130. Um, and you know, the angles and, and the wind and everything else plays a huge factor in that, but, uh, wound up killing my second Ibex with a bow at 120 yards. And, uh, then was fortunate enough a few years ago to draw another muzzleloader tag and, and, uh, Got a really nice billy on the second day, but been guiding uh, Ibex down there for a while. Um, taking quite a few really nice ones with rifles and muzzleloaders. Um, we, right now, we're running a 100% success rate on rifle and muzzleloader. Um, I had a gentleman a few years ago that was 72 that drew the rifle tag and wound up getting him a really nice billy on the first day. That's so, fantastic. you know, uh, it's, yeah, you know, you get some guys that they, they call and ask me, you know, well, I'm 65 years old. Is this for me? And I said, well, we just need to sit and visit about it. And if you are physically uh, fit to do the task and you've got the heart, we'll work with you. You know, we'll do whatever we can to make sure that uh, we're not pushing you past your limits or, or what we need to do to make it happen. But, you know, not there's everybody's got a different style of life and so if guys are want to get out and get in shape i don't know that you know age truly matters because we're not going to push you past your limits that's awesome the, um, um, joseph i got a question for you um where did these ibex come from and are they considered uh bezors or what what are these ibex 
Yeah, they were brought in back in the 70s. The actual cages, uh, the you know, the wooden crates where they flew them in with a helicopter, still on top of the mountain. Um, and they were brought in, and uh, it's my understanding that they were given to the, the governor of New Mexico as a present from, like, Iran, and uh, introduced here, and they call them the Bezor Persian Ibex. And they're a full-blood string of that ibex. Okay. And these are in the um, Florida mountains, which are – tell everyone uh, where the Floridas are located geographically in relation to maybe some towns or what have you so they can kind of put together, put it all together. Well, you've got the main mountain, which is called the Floridas, and it's straight south of Deming, New Mexico, right off Interstate uh, 10. Um, which the mountain range going towards Columbus, um, it, the main mountain range runs north and south as far as, because uh, the mountains, it's kind of long uh, and skinny basically because it's uh, nine, nine, nine and a half miles long and about six miles wide. It's almost built into a T, if, if you will. Um, it's, oh, I'm going to say it's like 10, 10, 15 miles from the Mexican border. Um, but it's basically straight south of uh, Deming, and then you've got what they call the Little Floridas, which is included in that Unit 25. Um, it's a smaller portion of the mountain. Um, majority, 99.9% .9 of the ibex are on the Floridas. Every now and then you'll get some that get kicked off, bumped off um, when they do their um, their qualifying hunts where they'll try to reduce the herd. The biggest problem that uh, we're having is... Um, the game and fish have an agreement with the state of uh, the, the BLM to only keep like four to 600 Ibex on the mountain range. And, and there's points and times where we're getting, you know, 900 to a thousand Ibex on the mountain and they've got to do something about it. So they've incorporated these um, management hunts. And so at those point in times is where you'll kick a few off that might want to get off of that mountain and cross that desert floor. Cause realistically you're talking, Man, the closest mountains to that are the the Tres Romanos down the, right on the Mexican border there, and you're talking, you know, I bet as a crow flies, I bet it's three, four, at least three or four miles across the desert floor to get to that mountain range. So there have been a few killed in in, uh, in that mountain range, but um, you know, I've had guys ask me, well, what do you think about the offerings tag? And I say, well, how much time do you have? Because we're going to have to sit down there for a month or two to even see one. It's just realistically, I mean, you got guys that live right there in that dimming area that go down every weekend and glass that mountain just looking for one because it's, a, you know, it's an over-the-counter off-range tag. So those guys that live right there are going to go and pursue that where, you know, most of us that uh, don't live right there in dimming aren't going to. It makes sense. Um, how do they break down those Ibex hunts? Well, right now, the way the structure is, is the, the very first hunt of the year is the way I call it, because I go, when I talk about a year, it's not January 1, it's what I consider the April 1st is how the game and fish, that's their year, April 1st to March 31st. So the very first hunt of the year um, is the, the first archery hunt, October 1st. Um, that's what I consider to be the better of the two archery hunts, um, and just because they haven't been chased for like six months. Okay. So they're pretty, I'm not going to tell you that they're calm because an Ibex is afraid of his own shadow. Um, they're just that weary. Uh, 
the nannies uh, that run around with them uh, are always sitting up above the whole herd. You'll always have one, what we call sentry nannies, that's up above everybody, and she's going to alert the whole herd of anything, but literally there's somebody's watching you at all, all times. It's very, very, very difficult to get close to them. But um, that October hunt seems to be a little bit better just because they haven't been chased. Um, then you go right into the uh, the once-in-a-lifetime rifle hunt, which is the middle of November when they're running. Um, I'm not going to say that it's cheating, uh, but it's a lot of fun to go out there during that rifle hunt because they're running, they're chasing each other, they're making noise, they're being stupid, um, and I'll be honest with you. Um, they're still weary, but it's nothing like anything you'll ever experience any other time of the year whenever they're mating. Um, then after the, the once in a lifetime hunt, you've got your uh, muzzleloader hunt, which starts like the first weekend in December and that runs for a couple of weeks. And then you got your youth hunt that starts the day after Christmas. Um, they structured that. It used to be in September, but they restructured it, um, for those kids to uh, be able to hunt on their Christmas break. And so they get to hunt from, uh, December 20, I believe it's December 27th to like January 10th. And then after that, you, uh, you've got your second rifle hunt or your, sorry, your second archery hunt, which is, uh, starts around January 15th or 16th. And, and that's when it's a little bit more difficult. And that's why I was saying and explaining that the first bow hunt is easier, uh, a, a little bit easier, I guess I should say to do just because, uh, you can kind of see how I've laid the scenario out they've been chased for three months with rifles and now you got to go try to kill one with a bow so it's a little bit more difficult in january i've heard the october 1st through the 15th hunt is a rattlesnake infested sucker up there on that mountain is that true (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) and let's let's hear some stories I'm (laughs) (laughs) i'm not gonna lie about it it can be um, you just got to be careful. I mean, it's like anything else of, of all of us guys that hunt in the West. Um, you just got to be careful. You got to be paying attention, um, as to what's going on. Um, it's, it's definitely hotter and it's definitely got the snakes. Um, there's no doubt about that, but, uh, um, I mean, last year I was guiding a guy and, and, uh, we wound up getting, I had a, we had two bow hunters over there last year and, and we wound up getting, uh, my hunter killed one on the first day. And we were helping the other uh, guy out because I run my operation with two guides per hunter. Um, you always have a spotter helping you out with this, with your situation, keeping an eye on the Ibex. But uh, I stepped out of the pickup when we were going to meet back up that evening, and there was a rattlesnake right there in the road. So, yeah, I'm not going to lie about it. There's definitely snakes. When you're but, up in the actual rocks and stocking and stuff, like in – actually up in the rocks is it pretty bad or is it mainly just kind of in the vegetation and and kind of in the lower country as you're walking the ridges getting up to where you're going that's right i mean yeah that's where you're going to encounter most of your snakes is down in the foothills the flatter stuff and the foothills just getting up to where you're working in because i mean that mountain does get some rain and it does get some grass on it but uh most of that stuff is down, like you say, on those foothill ridges, getting up into there is where you're going to encounter most all your snakes. I mean, once you get up high, you know, you'll see a, a few, but it's very few. How do you determine a trophy uh, Ibex? You know, like, what are some of the things that you're looking for, characteristics and what have you, when you're, um, you know, trying to figure out if it's a good one or not? 
Well, you know, the, the Ibex have um, two different characteristics of horn configurations. One of them is what we call a wagon wheel billy. And his horns is exactly the way it's called. I mean, the horns are wagon wheel. They, they loop around. And so when you're looking at that bill, you're looking at um, the stripe on his shoulder. How far does his uh, curl come back behind that, sh that stripe when his head is, you know, standing in a certain position, not stretched out feeding, you know, not turning, looking, just basically standing there. Where is that end of that wagon wheel coming around and, and how much is turning up? I mean, it's, it's a lot like judging sheep. You've got to look at them at a couple of different angles to even know whether, uh, you know, you're going to pursue that animal with a rifle or a muzzleloader. Now, with, an, with a bow, um, any ibex billy is a good one with a bow. And, and everybody always says any ibex with a bow is a good one, but we try to say that any billy with a bow is a good one. Um, and then we got what you call a straight horn billy, which is horns are still going to curve, but they're not going to, they're not going to turn quite so hard. And we killed one um, with a rifle hunter one year that uh, was a 48 inch billy that was straight horned. And, and he looks like a giant just because of how far his horns come back. I mean, they could almost scratch his butt with them. They just come almost straight back. And it was just a really beautiful, beautiful ibex. I'm looking here on uh, Graham's guide services, uh, dot com in your photo album here of the Ibex. And it, it's interesting to definitely see there, you know, distinctly two different types of horn configurations. Um, in your opinion, like what's your favorite? Do you like the wagon wheel or do you like them more straight? If you had to choose. Man, that's, gonna just depend sometimes those straight horn billies will get a wide flare to them at the top and they're just awesome looking or you can get one. Oh, we were guiding a youth hunter down there one year and i was watching a billy on the side of this hill that well, i was glass and glass and i finally picked up this one billy and he was a giant and it made my heart race and he was a wagon wheel billy his horns come around come up and then the tips started turning out um it was just an amazing creature to, to sit and watch. It actually made my heart race just to sit there and look at him through a spot and scope. It was kind of a neat situation to be in. But, you know, those bibics, they'll walk up to a rock and start beating the crap out of their horns, trying to break them off. Because if you think about these horns on these, you know, they're a goat. So it's not like they're a big animal. They're a small animal and they've got these huge horns. And they can run across a sheer-faced wall and they'll catch those horns. So they don't like those horns, uh, you know, being on their head, to be honest with you. So you'll see them beating them on a rock and you'll find, uh, you know, Ibex that are got some of them broke off, some of them halfway. Some of them we've seen, they just have two nubs sticking up because they want to get rid of them just like anybody else. Cause it messes up. We've watched them run with their head kind of kicked out and you know, they know it's not no different than a bull elk running through the timber. He knows what he's got on his head and how he's got to get it through there. And the Ibex are the same way. I, I describe an Ibex to hunters as like you can turn it loose in your house and they can run on the spackling on the wall. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> first question I would have for you is what does a mature billy weigh? Mm, I'm going to say that you're probably looking at about 110, maybe 120. How about a, a mature, is it a nanny? A mature nanny. Yeah. Geez, she's not going to go over 50, 60 pounds. Okay. 56. They're small. And yeah, you know, I had a guy call me the other day. He was down on that nanny hunting. He said, Joseph, I can't find one. 
Hey, he says, I, I've been down here for two days, glass, and I can't find an Ibex. So I told him where to go, what to do. He called me back. He says, I owe you one. I know what they look like now. <laughs> <laughs> and do nannies, you know, uh, do nannies have horns as well? They do. They do. They've got small little horns. Okay. Yep. You know, I've been very fortunate. I've We've had quite a few guys that we've guided as Graham's guide service, but I've, uh, I've personally guided seven guys and killed six Ibex with a bow and and the furthest one as far as me guiding and killed was 89 yards. And the closest was three yards. Wow. Do you ever get Ibex where that just the anomaly where they'll let you walk up to them and, and more docile like sheep? Or, I mean, are they all just wild as they can be? No, you're not walking up on an Ibex. Um let me rephrase that. I've walked up on a nanny in a cave and she laid her head down on the rock and uh, had her head laid down and just sitting there basically saying, well, you can't see me. Gotcha. And and they live in the rocks, right? The roughest, the, the place that the sheep won't even live, like the, the steepest, nastiest rocks. And is that correct? And what are their, uh, their hooves? I assume their hooves are soft and, and, and pliable. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's their hooves are very soft. I think they got suction cups in them somehow. I'm not quite sure how they do what they do because, uh, you know, you'll see them up there on the side of a sheer face cliff and, and uh, they're stretched out between two rocks and they're on three legs, basically reaching out there, either getting some, some what I consider salt out of the rocks or nibbling on a little bit of green something and, and, you just have to go down and see the things to to understand or even believe what we talk about when we talk about ibex. Um, as far as they spend the nights on the sheerest, nastiest, straight up and down stuff you can find, they live on the domes. They live on the faces um, at night because that's their only method of uh, protection from the mountain lions because they've got mountain lions that are turned loose down there on that mountain. And we've run into and seen a few, but... Uh, there are mountain lions down there, and, and that's the only thing. That... Hello? Yep, I got you. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. My phone vibrated, so. No problem. Um, so a, a good rule of thumb is that if you can, in the mornings at first light, be glassing those, those domes and those steep, steep areas of sheer rock, um, that's where you feel like, you know, you're going to at first light pick up more of your uh, Ibex because they're doing that as a defense mechanism. So a predator can't crawl out on the rock with them. So they want those like sheer faces that, you know, the bobcat and the, and the lion can't and the coyote, I guess, can't get out to. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, first light. And, you know, it's funny because sometimes you'll be glass and, and they'll stay on those domes and the flat faces till the sun comes up and sometimes as soon as you can see and they can see they're going to come off and 90 percent of the time they won't retreat back to the domes or the cliffs uh unless they've really been pressured hard they're going to keep running around um and eating and and you know sometimes you get up on the mountain and you'll be pushing them and you get other hunters pushing them and you look down and they're pulling down by the pickup and you're like are you kidding me 
So they <laughs> will they will get down in the flats at times. They'll get down lower areas. Not necessarily all the way in the flats, but they'll get right at the edge of it in the foothills. Yeah, just getting away from us. Uh, it happens all the time. All the time. You're like up on top of the mountain and you look down and you're like, man, I wish I was standing at the truck right now. <laughs> because when, nobody's down at the bottom. Everybody's on top. <laughs> when you're hunting these Ibex, is it best to approach from above or below? What's, what's usually your general rule of thumb? Man, you just want to approach downwind of any sort. You know, you want to keep your wind right. You want to keep yourself hidden. Um, probably from above. If I had to say one one approach method, you're going to want to try to come in above them um, because most of the time they're looking down. But, you know, obviously I took a guy one time on top of a dome and we had him right below us. And, I mean, as soon as he drew his, I told him, draw his bow back and peek over. I said, they're right there. And he drew his bow back. And as soon as they saw that bow come over, I mean, they scattered like quail and were gone. And we came in above them. So, you know, who knows? But biggest thing is staying hidden and not, let them see your movement because they are seriously a, a, a dang uh, butterfly will scare them. How have you had, well, compared to mule deer, compared to coos deer, compared to elk, you know, some of that kind of stuff, um, how far out, how good eyesight do they have compared to those animals? Ooh, I'm going to say they're going to be somewhere equivalent to an antelope. So in other words, I mean, you got to stay yeah. out of sight. I mean, if they see you at, at seven, eight, nine hundred yards, they're gone. They're they're moving, getting away from you. There's that possibility. Yes, um, I can also tell you that they somehow know um, who's hunting and who's not hunting, and whether it's bow season or rifle season because. <laughs> <laughs> we have had guys up on the mountain and the ibex come down and we go to push them back up the hill and the guy pushing is like 50 60 70 yards from them and they're just sitting there looking at him yeah. and it's like are you kidding me you know you always you run into those scenarios every now and again <laughs> like really yeah wow. <laughs> it just happens the i'm looking at the go hunt insider looking at the draw odds and it looks like last year on that rifle hunt which you said was you know the premier hunt of the whole deal because they're running uh november 15th to the november 29th there were three tags that were offered in the guided uh pool there was 875 apps so it puts the odds at 1.7 percent um but going if people well, my question is, if people apply with you in the guided draw um, year after year, have you seen it where their odds are better than if they just draw in the regular non-resident, you know, pool? Well, I mean, obviously, yes, their odds are, are almost double better uh, to go with an outfitter and be in that outfitter pool. Um, because, you know, a lot of guys uh, don't want to spend the money to go with an outfitter. There's a lot of guys out there of do-it-yourself type hunters that, you know, they're just not going to, they're not going to do it. They, you know, they've got the time or they want to make the time to, to go scout and do it on their own. So I think, uh, yeah, um, we're, we're getting a few guys, uh, new guys every year that want to apply with us, but, uh, um, we're not flooding the market, I guess you should say in that outfitter pool. Um, we're putting quite a few people in, but 
we're not flooding that market, but I would say that it's definitely better because uh, in, you know, on the non-resident unguided, there's probably one tag versus three. So, yeah, I'm also looking at like the, uh, you know, the archery, there were 36 apps for 10 tags total in the October 1st to the October 15th hunt for archery. So obviously that, that early archery season is percentage wise, your best option to draw a tag. Um, but it's also like you said, uh, you know, it's, it's, you like that hunt, but there's a lot to it. Correct. Yeah. And you know, it's like I referred to in the beginning. The reason I like it is just because they haven't been messed with for six months. And uh, I'm not going to say that it's any easier. It's just a little bit different. They're not standing there um, looking in every direction, um, freaking out, trying to figure out who's coming after them, who's chasing them, where's the next bullet coming from. Um, They're just a little bit different acting um, in that October hunt. Plus it's warmer. You know, they're not going to just keep running around because obviously they're an animal and they don't want to overheat either. So, you know, they just act a little bit different in that hunt. Would you say, and then we're going to move on to Oryx, would you say the Ibex out of all the animals that you hunt and guide, is it your favorite? Yes, by far. Okay, so you're just an Ibex nut. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah, I just love them. I mean, I just love the dang things. Sounds good. Let's uh, move on and talk about Oryx and explain to the listener what an Oryx is. Uh, and then a little bit about the hunts and um, your experience with those oryx hunts. Well, the oryx is uh, what we call the oryx. His uh, African name is Gimsbok. Was the same thing was brought in um, back in the 60s, 70s. I'm not exactly sure when they were brought into the White Sands Missile Range down here. And right now we've got basically three different areas that we can hunt. One is the McGregor Range, which is not a once-in-a-lifetime hunt. We have the Rhodes Canyon, which is a once-in-a-lifetime hunt, and the Stallion Range, which is a once-in-a-lifetime hunt. Um, they offer um, some broken horn hunts that are not once-in-a-lifetime, and and some off-range tags, which you know it's it's not as easy off-range to get an orch as it used to be. You know, you can still get one, but you know they're running basically a hunt every month with probably 60 tags uh, for off-range public land, and and it's uh, it's a little bit more difficult to draw, but uh, the premier hunts on the missile range are still phenomenal. Um, they, they, uh, they've hunted them pretty hard. You know, obviously the same thing. They were starting to get out of that missile range and scatter, um, quite a bit. Uh, they've got scattered basically from El Paso, Texas, all the way up to dang near Albuquerque. So that gives you a slight <laughs> idea of how far these things have traveled. Um, I don't know how many of them have wound up down in that Texas country, but I know there's some, um, I've seen one on the side of the road as soon as I come out of uh, Texas right there, coming from El Paso, headed this direction one night, one standing standing on the side of the road. So they've scattered a long ways. Those hunts, but, um, um, don't you have to meet at uh, the, the White Sands Missile Range headquarters and you have to go through a little, little class or what have you, and then um, it's fairly regulated, is it not? Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, um, if you draw that tag, you know, you've got to turn in uh, all of your paperwork and everything in advance because they're doing background checks on you. They're, you know, they're going to find out how many kids you got and 
who your parents are and everything, you know, they're going to do full screen. Um, they do the same thing with us. We have to have our uh, paperwork turned in way early, like, you know, the middle of July for, uh, you know, September, huh? because they're going to do uh, background checks and screens on, on myself and all of my guides and everything. So um, when you do get that, then you show up at the, the orientation on, uh, oh, they usually start about 10 o'clock on Friday morning. You go out there to your orientation. Um, they check everybody in. They run you through the orientation, tell you your do's and don'ts, obviously not to pick up anything, you know, don't touch anything out there because they're what they call UXO, unexploded ordinances in certain spots. Um, if you see anything that's man-made that looks funny, you know, turn it in, mark it on your GPS and turn it in so they can go out and send a bomb squad to go look at it and whatnot. But they have some areas where they know and have noted that they are, and they're called closed areas. And uh, they're inside, you know, on your map, you'll see them marked out in red, which is, you know, got all the little lines to it. Do not go in here, and they cone it off um, when you're out there on that hunt. You know, they'll cone that stuff off, and, and it's marked very well um, to let you know that you can't go out there or seem to know where those areas are. <laughs> <laughs> For whatever reason, they know you can't go in there. And, uh, but um, it's it's really uh, the Oryx hunts are what I call a glorified antelope hunt. They're a lot of fun. They're really good to eat, and you know it's it's a hunt now. You know there was times back in you know in the '90s where there were so many of them. You know as more people just driving around and shooting one, and and it's turned into a hunt. You know we get out there and we glass and glass up some good ones, and and you know the field judging on those is a little bit difficult. Um, just trying to make sure that you you got to get the right one. You don't want to waste a once-in-a-lifetime tag. And, and uh, the one-year-old Ibex, you got what they call brownies, which is the babies, and those are very obvious. Then you've got your one-year-old Oryx, and they're a little bit smaller than the adults but a little bit bigger than the brownies. But sometimes you'll get a group of uh, one-year-olds uh, and not having a, an adult. So they call them a sub-adult, you know, not having an adult with them. And we've seen guys go out there and shoot those not knowing what they're doing and they wind up showing up at the check station you know, and, it's, and it's still illegal orcs but they show up at the check station with a, a 26 or 28 inch orcs and and they have no idea of you know what they've just done because they you know they don't haven't been out there enough to truly know what they're looking for how much does body size play in i would think it would be huge with uh, field judging on oryx um just you know small bodies horns look longer uh you know big bodies horns are going to look sh shorter smaller you know for the most part your cows are you know once they get to that two-year-old plus they're going to be about the same size um most all your cows your bulls are going to be slightly bigger um not a lot i mean if you've got a whole herd of orcs standing out there you're going to see the the base of the horns are a little bigger you know, obviously, if you're looking at them with a spot and scope, the rings on the horns go up about three quarters of the way up the horn. Or on a cow, they go about a quarter to half, maybe not even quite half. Um, the necks are going to be bigger. They're going to be a, just a, a little bit bigger of an animal. But, you know, the guy doesn't look at them very often. You're looking out there, you know, it's like, well, which one's a bull? He's not going to know. So the general person that hasn't seen a lot, they're not going to tell the difference between a bull and a, and a cow? Yeah, if they're depends on the distance. Yeah, absolutely. They could look at a herd of orcs and not know the difference between a bull and a cow. You know, at a, at a given distance. How wild are the orcs? You know, 
and this kind of plays into the factor of the hunt that you can draw. I mean, obviously the further end of the year that, you know, they hunt, uh, they hunt roads, Canyon three, three times, they hunt the stallion three times. So obviously by that third hunt, they're a little bit wilder. They've been chased and, and shot at. And so they're a little bit wilder on that third hunt, but, um, they're still, you know, they're still pretty wild. You're going to have to, you know, be able to stock out there and shoot some. I mean, you know, most of the time we're telling guys to be prepared to shoot, you know, four, possibly five at the most. We don't want to, you know, be slinging lead much over that. But, you know, I took a guy in February and killed a really nice oryx on the stallion, and we got in a ditch and worked our way down in, you know, 189 yards. So you just play the terrain to your favor. Do, do very many oryx get killed with a bow, or is it pretty much a firearm game? Yeah, you'll have every now and again somebody shoot one with a bow, but it's primarily firearm game. What caliber do you recommend for the Oryx? You know, most of the time we want guys to be bringing a 7 mag or a 300 wind mag, um, anything right around that caliber that's, you know, something you're going to shoot an elk with just because they're tough. Um, they're a very tough animal. you got to shoot them through that front shoulder because, you know, they're one of them African species where they're, vitals are kind of pushed forward inside their chest cavity so you know they'll tell you that in the orientation to to shoot them right through the front shoulder to try to break them down so i mean obviously we've seen them go down on various different shots and and uh you just want to bring a decent sized gun you don't want to show up with a 243 that's one question i didn't ask when we were on ibex what what caliber do you recommend on ibex well, I'm just a 300 Win Mag guy. Um, that's my favorite gun. You can shoot anything from a coyote, you know, to a moose with it. And so I'm just a 300 Win Mag person. So if you're asking me, that's what I'm telling you to bring. <laughs> Understood. Uh, I'd like to transition here to talking about your elk hunts and living in Rio Doso. Uh, I would assume you hunt there in the Sacramento mountains. What units do you hunt primarily there? You know, we try to stay focused on 36. We do a little bit in 34. I've got some guides that love 34 and they're all the time wanting me to put some guys in and draw over there. There's, there's 34 is uh, a different unit from 36. It's got a few more roads in it. It's not quite as uh, steep. In elevation, I mean, obviously, that it is 9,000 feet at some of the points over there in 34, but you don't have the peaks and the steepness of what we have in, in some of 36. Now, 36, um, basically, 36 is on the north side of the Mescalero Apache Reservation, and 34 is on the south side of the Mescalero Apache Reservation, but um, 36, you know, basically, we can hunt from 9,000 to 11,000 feet. Um, there is a peak right here that's on the reservation that's 12,000 um, but, you know, we can hunt all kinds of different country from the rolling hills, pinyon, juniper, plum up into the aspen meadows in the high country at 11,000 feet. So, you know, we've got a, a wide variety. We got the guys that call us that are, you know, fitness runners and they want to go and they want to hike in and, and uh, get back in there where nobody else is. And we can do that or we can accommodate some of the guys that, you know, maybe can't do quite that. And, you know, they want to hunt some of the lower country and there's, you know, there's bulls throughout the unit. A few years ago, we had a, a huge burn come through here uh, and burn off a bunch of the wilderness and the forest, and, and it has created a huge amount of vegetation, and, and it's done very well for us as far as uh, opening up some country for some longer rifle shots and uh, 
the feed for the animals and putting on some good horns. Did it burn on the Mescalero reservation as well, or did the, was the fire limited to off of the reservation? Um, it burnt some of the res, but not very much. Um, so it was in that the, higher country. Did the res, a bunch of those res elk, you know, typically when there's new fresh burns, did you see an influx of elk come from the res into Unit 36, and has the hunting been better since the fire? The hunting has definitely been better since the fire. Um, some of that area that uh, that burnt, which is on the res and the national forest, is some places that they don't even hunt um, when it comes to their tribal hunts uh, and their package hunts and things like that. They they typically don't even go up into that higher country. So obviously, a bunch of those elk that uh, were up in that higher country dispersed out into a bunch of that burn. But yeah, it's definitely been better the last three or four years we've hunted it pretty good and killed some really nice bulls out of there i'm looking at these um go hunt insider draw odds on uh the september 1st through the 14th season uh and it looks like there was 207 applications for 13 tags in the guided uh portion of the draw putting the percentage at 9.3 percent so that's a situation you know that's that's pretty good draw odds for um, sounds like pretty good quality. What what you know? What can a guy expect that's in shape that uh, puts in um, for the unit thirty six hunt? What can he expect to kill? And I guess with that question, there's two seasons. There's the first to the fourteenth, and then there's the fifteenth to the twenty fourth. How do those the, the those two seasons differ from quality standpoint, and how do those hunts differ from you know just an overall hunt? Well, I get asked that question all the time about those two different hunts. Um, the the September 14th, first through the 14th, we generally run a six-day hunt. We do it the night to the 14th. Um, as far as the draws, yes, it's a little bit better. Um, and people ask me, well, is, is this the other hunt that the, that is the second hunt, is it better? And I say, well, it just depends. Um, sometimes we're able to do just as well, if not better, on that first hunt, obviously because the bigger bulls may have not started cowing up yet. The rut hadn't fully kicked into swing, and sometimes we're calling in um, pretty good bulls that uh, haven't quite found a harem and haven't quite made up their mind yet what they're going to do for the next month. And, uh, you know, um, I called in a bull on that first season for a guy last year and scored 337. Um, called him right in, called him in on a string, and... Uh, he was able to stick him in. And so to, to say that one is better than the other, I don't know. Um, it, is a, it is a very unique unit because I get hunters that come out here and hunt with us and, and they go to some of these other states and, you know, pack in a horseback for 10 miles into the wilderness and, and they hear two bugles and see one bull and they come out here and hunt with us. And they're like, are you kidding me? This is like Jurassic Park elk hunting. You know, you got elk coming and screaming in your face and slobbering and, and uh, it's just a very fun hunt. Uh, we're not killing those giant bulls like they do on the western side of the state. Uh, we have killed some good bulls in this unit, but it's not typical. And that's what I make sure that people understand whenever they call and talk to me. Um, you, you've got to wade through some elk if you're willing to pass up, you know, quite a few bulls. Then you can work your way into maybe doing a 340 or 350 bull. But that's just not typically uh, what we're hunting. Um, 
I tell guys we're killing bulls between 280 and 320 with a chance at something bigger. We're we're always killing a a 340, a 350, a 360, or even bigger. You know, at least one of those bulls every year. Um, but they're just you know you're not going to see a ton of those elk. Um, sure. You got to wade through a lot of smaller bulls to get to a bull like that. And I tell guys if you're willing to pass up those, then we're willing to take you hunting and see if we can find something. But uh, you know I won't guarantee anybody they're going to see a 370 bull. Um, it's just not something I'm going to do. Sure. But as far as bugling and opportunity and having a great hunt and, you know, a chaos type bugling hunt, Jurassic park type, you know, like action, uh, (laughs) it's definitely a a great unit for that. Well, I tell you, we had 18 bow hunters last year and everybody, but one guy flung an arrow. Okay. Um, and it wasn't because he didn't have elk you know, in his face or all around him, you know, just everybody's got a different situation, but yeah, we, we, uh, we put guys right in the middle of them and, and I shouldn't even say this because, uh, people might expect it. And, and I've been guiding for over 20 years and it was the first time it's ever happened to me. I took a guy out, we stayed out all day and we pounded all day long and I called in 12 bulls. Wow. And that's just, I mean, you think about it, I've been doing this for 20 years and that's never happened before in my life. So it may never happen again, but it was a day I'll never forget. That's awesome. And then the muzzleloader hunt, um, tell me about the timing of the season in 2017 and, you know, how that muzzleloader hunt typically goes. And, and is that a better hunt than the archery hunt or is it kind of after the bugling, you know, t- Tell me what, I believe the dates are the 7th through the, the 11th this coming year. Yeah, you know, it's funny because the, the Mexico Game and Fish always starts our muzzleloader and rifle hunts on a Saturday. So every year that hunt will get a day earlier until they decide to throw it back. So, you know, obviously last year it was on the 8th. This year will be on the 7th. So I, I don't know exactly when they're going to throw it back. I've hunted that hunt as, as uh, early as September 29th. I don't think they'll ever let it get that early again. Um, but I have actually hunted muzzleloader September 29th, but we have, the elk are still screaming. Um, for me, the peak of the rut around here is sometime between September 26th and September 28th. And so obviously it's, it's on the downhill slide of the peak, but they're still screaming and you can still call the bulls in. We are, we get excited when the muzzleloader season starts because all them big bulls that we were having trouble trying to get in on or couldn't get called in because of the herd or whatnot we we know where they're at and we go out there and start hammering them with a muzzleloader um and so we like it um we we uh we had 10 guys last year and killed uh killed eight bulls uh the two guys that didn't kill bulls both shot bulls and kind of average what kind of bulls general well you know most of those bulls if we took all of them threw them into a hat you're going to come out with a 315 average 315 uh, yeah, some of them. I mean, I think the biggest one we shot on the muzzleloader hunt was like right around 330. Okay. And then as you transition into the rifle hunts, I believe there's two rifle hunts, the 14th through the 18th and the 28th through the 1st. Uh, tell me how those hunts differ from each other and, um, you know, it, what your success is on both of those hunts. Um, well, you think about that muzzleloader hunt starting on the 7th and going for five days, and then you've got two days break. You've got Thursday and Friday, and then we start rifle hunting. That first rifle hunt starts basically two days after the muzzleloader ends. 
and so they're still still bugling, they're still screaming. Um, so it's kind of the same thing. You just got a little bit longer range as far as you're shooting. Um, we run a hundred percent on that hunt last year. Um, every single person that we guided killed a bull, um, killed a beautiful eight, I think it was an eight by nine bull, um, on that hunt. And then when you transition, you got a couple of week break. And then like this year, that second rifle hunt will start October 28th and go to November 1st. At that point in time, there's some of the guys that, uh, are fit and go hunt some of that higher country, um, with my guides, uh, they, they've run into bulls up there screaming still. You think about it, it's kind of crazy. The end of October 1st of November, bulls still screaming, but it happens. But most of your bulls are starting to get away from the, the big bulls are starting to get away from the cows. They're going back there. Some of them are even herding up with other bulls, um, but they've become more patternable. Um, you know, they're just trying to put food back on now. They've, they've spent a month and a half, almost two months rutting, and they're, they're tired. They're wore out, and they're ready to get back to their normal routine of hanging out with the boys and eating. And so they become a little bit more patternable. And, and sometimes we kill our biggest bull on that, uh, that last rifle hunt, just because of that reason. Cause they're retreating back to those areas and you kind of know where to go and where to find them in those canyons and such. Yep. And they're a little bit more patternable and you know, you know, when they're going to come out where they're coming out, you know, it's, they're not going to, get off with a bunch of cows and pushing them around and another bull push them and run them off and they don't know which canyon they're in anymore. It's, they become very patternable. Your hunts for elk, um, are they, um, you know, camping type hunts or are you staying in motels or do you have cabins or how do you, how do you do that? Well, in 36, I have a lodge, um, right next to my house that the hunters stay in. Um, we have a cook that Cook provides meals at night. Uh, we do quick grab-and-go breakfast in the morning and uh, lunch. You know, most of the time uh, you make something to take out with you if you're going to stay out all day. Sometimes you don't stay out all day because, you know, we, we hop in a truck and we drive to a trailhead and, you know, everybody kind of scatters out and you walk in and you either uh, come back in. Uh, if you didn't go that far, you come back in and go rest your feet, uh, you know, get something to eat, kick your boots off and go back out in the afternoons or, Sometimes, you know, you chase some bulls and you wind up too far in and you just stay out all day. But that's typically how those uh, are run. We do one-on-one guide service. Every now and again, we'll put together a two-on-one. Some guys just really want that, and, and we'll, we'll accommodate that. But most all of our prices are based on one-on-one guide service. Um, we, have, uh, we have the mules to get the, the elk out of the woods. Um, we don't hunt off the mules. Everything's done on foot. And so in 36, that's been pretty much how that's run um in 34 we've got a set of cabins that we rent and uh, put the hunters up in there and uh our cook over in 36 prepares the meals and uh freezes them and sends them over with the guides to just pull out and heat up for the evening sounds like a good time uh do you guys it's kind of off the subject, but uh, I've hunted the Mescalero several times for turkey. Do you guys also have good spring turkey hunting there in 36? We do. Um, I don't offer it. Um, we're actually taking a group this year. Um, I don't offer it, obviously, because of, with my job and things, but I've got some guides who are like, hey, we want to guide some turkeys hunter, book some turkey hunter. So um, we're going to start offering it. Um, but, yeah, we've got some really good turkey hunting, and so – we're going to start doing some of that. And obviously, um, 
my plan to retire in seven years. Hopefully we'll start offering some bear and mountain lion. I've got a, a guide that has dogs and, and runs cats and we'll start offering quite a few other options, you know, once, uh, once I'm able to spread out a little bit more. I know one of your other passions is uh, sheep hunting, and I wanted uh, to cover the uh, sheep options for uh, hunt for non-resident hunters there in New Mexico. I was wondering if you could go through uh, both the desert and the um, Rocky Mountain and kind of give the pros and cons of each unit and, and some of your knowledge about um, those those units. Well, um Let's just start with the desert. I mean, the desert are in the southern half of the state of New Mexico. And I would say the southern and the western center, the center of New Mexico to the western part, basically in that quadrant. Um, you've got one, two, three, about four or five different mountain ranges that hold the, the desert. Um, you've got the drones, which uh, always produces a giant. It's a tough a tougher hunt because the uh, you know the sheep come in and out of the uh, a refuge and so it's a little bit tougher hunt but you know they seem to kill a giant out of that thing every every few years um you've got uh, the white sands missile range um that holds uh two different hunts now they had one hunt and it's got two hunts now um just because of crowding on that that one hunt they decided to split it and so You've got two hunts on it. It's a very good hunt, you know, for taking a, you know, 170 to, to 185 type sheep. Um, so yeah, 170 to 180, 185 uh, desert, which is a, is a big sheep. Um, the hatchets has a couple of different hunts. Um, I was down there with a friend of mine's wife two years ago, and we killed a 179 and change desert um, in the hatchets. It's a, it's a good hunt with a, a chance to kill a, you know, a 165 plus ram. And then you've got the, the good old trusty uh, Pelincios on the far western side of the state that borders Arizona, which was at one point in time for many years the only desert sheep unit in the entire state. Um, it's always going to produce a, you know, a 170, 180 plus ram. And then you've got uh, right up there, uh, Ted Turner's place, the uh, in Cristobal, and uh, those units that are right there just outside of TRC. Um, Armadaris. Yep, yep, Armadaris. It's Ted Turner's place, and, and uh, he gets a few tags that he auctions or sells off to people. But that's a good, it's a good hunt. It's a good fun hunt. It's not uh, as physical as some of the others. The sheep quality is probably not as good as some of the other units. It's still really good, but it's maybe not quite as good as some of the others. Um, you know, you're going to probably be looking at a 150 to 165 ram. There's, they're going to kill a the ram off there a little bigger every other year, every couple of years, but yeah, it's, you know, the trophy quality is maybe just a touch less on that than it is some of the other units for sure. Um, and then as far as Rockies, they're pretty much the Northern central to, you know, center of the States to North. Um, you got the Pecos, which they run two different hunts, which is a good hunt. There'll always be a, a 175 to 185 ram taken, in there every few years um the wiener peak is phenomenal uh, my uncle had that tag a couple of years ago and and uh, he was 65 just got out of the hospital a couple of years or a couple of weeks before we were able to even get him up on that hunt and i uh, wound up getting him a, a really nice 175 ram um 
I was really uh, wishing we could have got him into some of the other country that we scouted. There was just no way to get him in there, but I saw a couple of sheep that were in that 183 to 186 range, just some phenomenal Rockies. Um, then uh, Latir, which is a good unit. You know, there's still about 170 to 180 plus sheep in Latir. Um, Rio Grand Gorge uh, is one of the newer units, um, some younger type rams, but gosh almighty, they've produced some giants out of that Rio Grand Gorge over the last few years. And I'm talking like 190 plus Rockies, which, you know, when you start talking about that, you start thinking about Montana. <laughs> yeah, for sure. When you think about sheep in that class, but, you know, that Rio Grande Gorge has been producing some giant sheep and, uh, so that's, I mean, there's one more unit that I don't, uh, I'm not familiar with that much about, but it's still producing decent. It's obviously not one of your top, top producers, but it's still, you know, obviously a, a good unit. And Joseph, will you explain to the listeners as far as non-resident applying for sheep and the fact that um, New Mexico does not have a bonus point system? So, so truly... Uh, it, it's anybody's, everybody has just as good a chance, correct? And, and walk, walk the listeners through how, how the sheep works and can they apply for desert, uh, and Rocky on the same permit, or do they have a separate draw for desert and a separate draw for Rocky? Yeah. Um, basically your Oryx, Ibex, um, everything got switched over, which used to, it was the elk and deer with a non-resident resident quota and i guess it was about three years ago they switched it and made everything the resident non-resident quota um 84 of the tags go to the resident 10 percent of the tags go to the outfitter pool and then six percent go to non-resident unguided and so for any of those species you can uh, if somebody wanted to apply for those um is exactly what you were just saying every year everybody's got the same shot you could take a guy that's applied in New Mexico for 30 years. And you can take a guy that applies tomorrow that has never applied in New Mexico and draw a desert or a rocky bighorn sheep the very first time he puts in. Um, and so going with an outfitter, obviously you got a little bit uh, better odds, almost double of what you would as going in non-resident unguided. And most people that's going to draw a tag like that once in a lifetime is going to want to go with somebody that uh, knows the area has got time to go scout it, look it over, find the biggest sheep they possibly can find in the unit and go after them and pursue them. Whenever you're applying, um, a lot of times I just have guys go to my website. I've got a contract form on there. I just have them fill it out completely. Um, They can scan it and email it to me. And I go in there and if they've never applied in New Mexico, I just go in there and I build them an account. Um, they're signing a waiver and a power of attorney so I can act on their behalf and build them an account. And I go in there and I apply them for Oryx, Ibex, uh, Rocky desert and all that stuff. They've got their credit card info on that, on that application. I charge their credit card. Or I shouldn't say I charge the game and fish charges their credit card, the full amount. Um, if, if they don't draw, I check the box that they want a, a refund on their hunting license, which they get their hunting license refunded back and they get, all of the money that they've put up except $13 per species that they will be charged as an application fee. I don't charge anything to do it. Um, I, I provide that for my people that apply with me. I provide that as a free service to apply people in the draw. Whenever I apply for uh, bighorn sheep, 
if they've never drawn a big one sheep tag in the state of New Mexico, um, I can apply them for both. And basically what happens is whenever I go into bighorn sheep, it's going to give me a choice of rocky or desert as my first. Okay. So let's just say I pick desert as my first. Once I pick desert, it's going to pull up all the units in the desert and it's going to allow me to pick three choices within those units. And I'm going to pick my first, second, and third choice for desert. Then I'm going to click on another button, which is my second choice option. And that'll be Rocky. And then I go in there and it's going to bring up all the different units within the Rocky and I get one, two, three. So basically, if you've never had a tag for bighorn sheep in the state of New Mexico, you've got six shots at drawing a bighorn sheep tag in the state of New Mexico, three for desert and three for Rocky. And is that chance of three for desert and three for Rocky only available in the guided pool or is that also the opportunity in the non-resident pool no it's the same it's the same guided non-resident it's just there's a few more tags in the guided pool than there is in the non-guided non-resident pool but they're still the same options um it's the same options for residents and in our quota system where 84 percent of the tags go to resident where you get the exact same options as the, the non-resident and the guided pool um it's all the same uh as far as how that's laid out and basically the way the game and fish on all the applications the way the new mexico department does is they issue you a random number and that random number is scrambled just like a deck of cards and you're just hoping that you're one of the top ones on that deck whenever that thing quits scrambling because we're going to look at Let's just say they pull up your, uh, your number. They're going to look at and then I applied you for desert, one, two, three. And they're going to look at your desert and go, okay, that one's full, that one's full, that one's full. They're going to pull up the rocky, which is your second choice. That one's full, that one's full, boom. You just drew a tag on your sixth, basically your sixth choice. You just drew a phenomenal tag because they look at all your options before they move on to the next thing, just like the Oryx. Let's just say I put you in for... Rhodes Canyon, Rhodes Canyon Stallion. They're going to look at the roads, it's full. They'll look at the second roads hunt, it's full. Boom, the stallion's got a tag, you're going to issue it, and it's still a phenomenal hunt. They look at all three choices before they move on to the next applicant. And that's different from Arizona, where they look at only the first two choices. In New Mexico, they look at the first three. That's correct. One yes, thing. I mean, some people are drawing phenomenal tags on their third choice, and they're like, well, this must not be a very good tag. It was my third choice. I'm like, oh, yeah, I still look at the tag. One question I would have for you is, let's say that there's somebody that's applying with an outfitter, let's say in western uh, New Mexico, but they would like to apply for Ibex and Bighorn Sheep and you, you know, Oryx with you, do you have any problem if someone applies with someone else for a certain species and with you, or is it they have to apply for every species with you in order to be in your guided draw? No, um, I've got, <laughs> I was talking to a guy yesterday and he says, I've got three different outfitters in New Mexico and I'm not quite sure why I do this or how this happens. He says, hopefully I'll get to come hunt with you and, and we'll hook up and, and, uh, and uh, you'll become my my number one outfitter for everything. But you know, <laughs> New Mexico is is broken up of so many different species and so many different things. Us as outfitters, um, some of us have have niches in our certain little areas. And so, you know, I have guys call me all the time. Hey, well, what about mule deer? I'm like, you know what? I can apply you 
uh, and some other units up north where, you know, that 2B, 2C, all them that, you know, border around that Hickory Reservation where they're taking some really good buck down there. But the thing about it is, is I'm not going to go up there and guide you. I'm going to refer you to another outfitter. And so I do that. Or I've got guys, like I was telling you, that he's got three different outfitters and he puts in for three different or four different things in New Mexico through through three different outfitters. So I don't have a problem with that. I'm I'm friends with several different outfitters and we all work together. You know, I mean, I'll send some guys that maybe I drew or, you know, some guys that put in with me, some of the guys that uh, fill out a contract with me, but they like doing their own application. You know, I'll visit with them about it and I'll say, well, okay, well, I want to put in this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, you got to understand that if you draw that third choice that I'm not going to outfit you, I'm going to refer you to somebody that I know that's going to take care of you. And they're perfectly happy with that because they don't know that person. They don't know who it is, but they trust what I'm going to do with them. Yeah, this is all great information. I actually pulled up the Graham's Guide Service hunt contract and I'm looking at it here and it's very well laid out with the limited power of attorney and what have you. And I could see how that's a, a, a great thing and service that you provide for your clients. Um, one thing that I, I've noticed here that I did not ask about that I want to make sure that I cover is uh, you also have the ability, I assume, in Unit 36 to have private land elk tags um, where if someone did not want to rely on the draw, uh, can they call you and get landowner tags uh, and, and, you know, in essence, book a hunt immediately with you that, that if you have availability to hunt next year? Yeah, what I've got going on, and I, I'm surprised that uh, I didn't even hit on it or think about it, but I probably purchase at the moment somewhere between 25 and 30 what we call unit-wide landowner tags. Um, I have been fortunate enough to be obviously living here my entire life and be friends and know the people that get these landowner tags, so I've got my hands on a pile of them. And what I do is I just have guys um, call me up and say, look, I want to come hunt with you next year. I got guys that hunted with me last year to say, I'm coming next year. What do I got to do? And so I basically just tell them, look, here's the deal. Send me $5,500 for a guaranteed landowner deposit. I'm going to put your name on it. We're going to put you in the, my calendar for what date do you want to come. So let's just say this guy says, I want to come on the second archery up on September 19th to the 24th. So I put his name in there. I put right beside his name that he has put down a $5,500 deposit. I still take him and I put him into the draw for that one. If he wants to come for that specific time frame, I'm going to put him in for that one hunt. Sure. If he draws it, then I'm going to sell his tag to somebody else, and basically his hunt's paid for. So in other um, words, but if he words, doesn't draw it, he's guaranteed to come. But in other words, you're also giving him the ability to. It actually gives makes his hunt a little bit cheaper because uh, he just drew the hunt, and you sell that landowner tag to someone else. But in in essence, his ch hunt just became cheaper because he didn't have to buy that landowner voucher. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I'm just being the nice guy and not saying, okay, well, I've already got this guy in a guaranteed tag, so I'm not even going to put him into the right, draw. Right, I'm going right. to put somebody else in. Right. I mean, I'm trying to make it, you know, yeah. uh, It would be easier for, for you if you just sold them and you're done with it. <laughs> you didn't hassle with it. But what you're saying is, that's, yeah, I get it. That's correct, because I've got guys that say, well, I don't care which one I come on. I just want to come. And let's just say they, uh, they want to come on a mature bull hunt, which is a muzzleloader or either rifle hunt. 
So they've sent me money and say, okay, well, I want to come on the muzzleloader, but put me in for muzzleloader rifle rifle. And so I've got them on the calendar for the muzzleloader, but they may draw the second rifle hunt. So now I've got to move them to the second rifle hunt and try to fill their hunt. So I'm very flexible um, with what I do. And so basically, I mean, you can see there on my contract, I'm running a $5,500 for a one-on-one guided hunt uh, plus tax. If yeah. you don't draw and you want to come on a guaranteed hunt, it's 10-5 plus tax. Seems very reasonable. Um, yeah, I really like the way you have this um, set up here. I, I also notice it it has youth hunts, and I wanted to ask you: um, Are the youth hunts just scream fests? When when are those dates for the youth hunts? Well, the youth hunts for New Mexico youth. Oh my gosh, yeah. New Mexico <laughs> has some of the best youth opportunities in all of the western side of the United States. Um, you know, there's an elk hunt in 34 where these kids are getting to hunt with a rifle the same weekend we're in hunting with a muzzleloader in 36, you know, the bulls are screaming and they're down there. It's, it's basically a youth and a mobily impaired hunt in 34. And so they're basically out there with a rifle chasing bull elk, just screaming. My son had that tag years back and it's just unbelievable. Um, you know, the Ibex hunt. There's youth only Ibex hunt. There's a um, youth only Oryx hunt. Um, the Oryx is youth and mobile impaired. There is a youth only desert bighorn sheep hunt. There is a youth only Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep hunt. Um, some of the, the deer hunts are, you, you're giving the kids, let's just say, oh, a week in November, and then they give them two weekends in December when they're starting to rut for mule deer and coos deer. And, and so, yeah, there's some units that is like, holy cow, I wish I was a kid again. Because yeah. they didn't have that when I was a kid. Yeah, for sure. Do you think... It's um, pretty phenomenal. Do you think the elk hunting in 36 is better now than it was when you were a kid? Or what do you think? I do, um, just because there's more. There's more elk. Um, there's definitely more elk. There's no doubt about it in my mind. They've scattered. They've they've uh, they've moved, and there's more of them. Um, I I still to this day don't see how we're able to do what we do, uh, as far as how many elk this unit is able to produce. But we keep doing it, and we're continuing to do it year after year after year. So obviously, their models that they go by and their their surveys when they fly is uh, you know is correct because we seem to be doing it. I mean. We at Graham's Guide Service killed 36 bulls last year. And so, you know, it's amazing to me as the fact that we were able to do this year in and year out. Um, one thing that I didn't mention is I, I've got a, a small piece of private ground uh, for elk hunting that uh, we take a few hunters on every year. Uh, it's, it's already booked up for this year, but it's a pretty neat little ranch that's, uh, oh, it's 5,000 acres. Uh, some guy people that's big for some places it's small um but it's a pretty u- unique and neat place to uh, to hunt elk on and then uh, we have a pretty neat uh antelope ranch that we acquired last year that uh, we are working on with the landowner obviously to produce trophy quality type antelope um, we killed an 88 six h inch goat off this place it's thirty-two thousand acres wow that sounds fantastic um well, Joseph, it's been great uh, having you on the podcast. 
Uh, really appreciate you bringing all the knowledge that you have on the ibex and the oryx and the elk and the sheep. And it's obvious that you love what you do. And it's it's great to hear another outfitter. Uh, I have a lot of great outfitters on this podcast, but it's great to hear an outfitter like yourself that's uh, you know fired up and and we have a lot of good guests here. And 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 you will be. Uh, uh, I know the listeners are going to really enjoy this episode, so I just want to thank you for your passion and and uh, explaining how everything works in New Mexico and how you do things there at Graham Guide Service. I uh, want to give you a chance to let the listeners know how they can get a hold of you and also want to encourage them to, uh, the, the deadline is March 22nd and um, yeah, they're going to need to get a hold of you right away and, and get this, um, they can go on your website and you can tell them how to do that uh, and also how to get a hold of you to apply uh, for uh, animals in New Mexico and if they have any further follow-up questions, how to get a hold of you. Yeah, and I appreciate uh, you having me and, and being long-winded. But uh, as far as uh, the deadline is fast approaching, we've got a week and a half. Um, the quickest way is to uh, just go to my website, which the quickest way I tell guys, I mean, it's basically gramsguideservice.com or just Google Grams Guide Service. It's going to pop up. And um, I, I just want to be clear, the, uh, Joseph, I'm sorry, because I was pronouncing it wrong. It's grams, plural. G-R-A-H-A-M-S guideservices.com. Yep. You can even, you can even pull it up by Graham's guideservice.com. I own both domains. Okay. And so it'll come up either direction or you can Google Graham's guide services, G-R-A-H-A-M-S Graham's guide service. It'll pop up um, on the homepage. You'll see um, price list, elk, ibex, uh, orange, big orange sheep, all the way across the top there. You'll see a hunt contract form. If you click on that, um, you can download it. You can fill it in if you want, or you can download it, print it off, fill it in with a pen. Um, basically, scan it and email it to me. My email is right there on the website. Um, email it to me. Give me a shout um, and let me know, uh, basically, that you have sent one. I, as soon as I receive it, I will call you and I will visit with you and I will go over you know, obviously on there, you can mark your options, but I still want to call and then I visit with people and say, okay, this is what we're doing. This is uh, how I'm going to apply you and make sure that the dates and, and seasons and everything fall into what they're wanting and, and get them applied. It doesn't take me that long to, to take care of it. So it's very simple. Um, the other way is to, uh, obviously on my website, it's got both my numbers, but uh, my cell phone, which is usually the best way to get a hold of me, which is 575 937 2099. Um, my home number is 575-336-2799. And so either way, um, you can leave a message on either one of them and I'll get back with you and, and uh, get you put in. That sounds great. Well, and even those guys, I mean, to be honest with you, those guys that even want to apply themselves because they've done it for years, I just have them send me the contract as long as I've got a contract on file and we both discuss what they're going to apply, then I give them my outfitter number and they can put in for themselves. So it's not, it's not something where a guy has to, has to let me put them in. They can do it themselves. We just discuss what they're going to do with their application and we move on from there. Well, that sounds fantastic. Uh, like I said, thanks for spending time with us and, um, yeah, God bless you, man, and I uh, hope you have a great fall, and I'll be watching uh, watching your progress, and um, 
just appreciate uh, the, the vast amount of knowledge that you brought here to this uh, episode on New Mexico, okay? I appreciate it, and if you uh, get the opportunity, um, keep your eyes peeled to Scent Blockers Most Wanted. I don't know if you know Larry Woodward and Bob Richardson with Scent Blockers Most Wanted, but uh, I've been guiding Larry for 20 years. Um, we've been doing TV shows for 20 years. Um, we actually filmed, um, I think, five five or six bulls that will be airing and, and coming up on episodes that, you know, if people or listeners want to see who we are or how we work, you know, there's TV shows out there that uh, that I've been doing that they can actually see it happen. That sounds fantastic, man. All right, take care. Thank you. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye.